Welcome, I am your host, Paul Joslin, and I am excited for the first ever episode of Waterstone's Monday Morning Phone Call Podcast. Every preacher knows when they're teetering on the edge of a topic that will result in receiving a phone call on Monday morning. Instead of backing away from those topics, this podcast exists to work through those polarizing ideas and spark conversation. In each episode, we'll be covering different topics that hopefully we'll be able to address with more nuance and depth than we might be able to in a 30-minute sermon. We'd love for this platform to start the conversation. Hopefully, it sparks more in-depth conversation with your friends, your family, and other areas of influence. So feel free to share and keep the conversation going on Twitter. Our handle is Waterstone News or WaterstoneCC on Instagram. Also, look for new episodes of this podcast to drop every other Monday morning. Today in the podcast, I am joined by Nick Lillo, the founding pastor of Waterstone Community Church, who is also currently serving as our missions pastor. Nick has over 30 years of ministry experience. He is a deep intellectual and one of the greatest preachers I've ever had the privilege of sitting under or learning from. Today, we are covering a topic of faith that just does not seem to go away and has been a lightning rod in churches and culture for almost 100 years. Our topic is origins and the Bible. So we'll cover a variety of different areas around this topic, uh, things like interpreting scripture, ancient Near Eastern creation narratives, the historical atoms, and then finally, the beauty, richness, and depth of scripture. Hope you enjoy the conversation on the Monday morning phone call. All right, well, thank you, Nick, for being on the first ever Monday morning phone call. Uh, want to start the podcast talking about origins and evolution and creation. And as we were studying for this, I looked up uh, some research about what people's perception of this topic is. And a Gallup poll from 2018, I found it fascinating because 38% of Americans believe in a strict six-day creationism. 38% of Americans, the same number, believe that evolution is real, but it was a God-guided process. And then there are about 19% of Americans who don't believe God was involved in the creation of mankind at all. So it's still a really hot topic. There's a yeah, lot of divisiveness. Divisive. There's a lot of different opinions. You would think that the science would be so conclusive that people would land on a place or the biblical evidence would be so conclusive that the people would have a better handle on this. But still, after almost 100 years since the Scopes Monkey trial, we are still having this conversation. So <laughs> It's, it's going to continue for another 100 too. I, I don't think, think we'll so. solve it today. I think so, yeah. We'll, we'll put our best effort forth, but we will probably not resolve this today. But why do you think it is such a, a divisive issue? Well, I, I think people are, are scared if we don't take the Bible literally, right. then we're compromising our faith and, and not being true to our beliefs. I think that's uh, an untenable position. I don't think that's necessarily true. Sure. And what we end up is putting science and the Bible at odds with each other. Absolutely. And that was my experience growing up in an, in an evangelical community. It was the atheists and the agnostics. They came up with the theory of evolution simply to disprove Christianity. That was mm -hmm. the whole purpose and agenda behind it. So Christianity's response and obligation was to disprove evolutionary theory and to make sure that the Christians defended the Bible. And so it 
from the start, the conversation was always this uh, portrayal of enemies, us versus them, that there's no common ground. If you want to be a Christian and believe in Jesus, you cannot believe right. in evolution. Yeah, and I think there's a different way to frame that, uh, um, to think uh, of creation and science as general revelation, that God actually does reveal himself yes. through the natural world and reveals truth through the natural world. And if God is revealing himself through the natural world, then the scientific discoveries and scientific conclusions have some truth and validity in them. Mm -hmm. That's the tension, though. We also believe the Bible reveals who who God is. And the tension comes, what do we do when those seem to be in contradiction to each other? Mm -hmm. And the easy answer, well, science is wrong. I'm going to be a Bible person or the Bible's <laughs> wrong. I'm going to be a science person. Uh-huh. And maybe we need to find a way that, that they can coexist together mm-hmm. and reinforce mm-hmm. each other because I think we have things to learn from both, and I think you can. It is fascinating to me, you know, we see this as a huge tension. You know, 70 years ago, uh, the tension wasn't there. There 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 was more openness to evolution or, or six-day creation. People held different positions, but it wasn't so polarized, yeah. and there wasn't so much anger. It's become more entrenched over the years, it seems like. Yeah, they, they become litmus tests. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that we have to have a lot more humility <laughs> Yes, <laughs> on both sides. Absolutely. Uh, science has to have humility and allow for mystery, and people who want to take the Bible literally in Genesis 1 or 2 have to have a lot more humility mm-hmm. and, and leave some mystery as well. It doesn't have to be this this tension. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think one of the unfortunate things is as a former youth pastor, I would have so many students who grew up believing they had to believe in a, a literal seven-day creation and then they go on to become biologists or scientists and, and they see all this information that they maybe didn't have when they were kids or teenagers and they can't reconcile their faith, what they grew up hearing from what they're being presented. And so they do end up walking away. And oftentimes we blame you know, liberal schools for pushing agendas, but but these kids that I talk to, they're looking at the evidence before them and they're feeling stuck. They don't want to lose their Christianity. They just want to be intellectually honest. Yeah, and so we've we've... And force we force them into this di- exactly di- dichotomy. Yeah. And not only are there uh, Christians who walk away from their faith because of evolution, evolution, but uh, it becomes a huge obstacle. So people true. who believe in Jesus and see him as some somebody they want to follow think, "Oh, well, I have to throw my mind out if I do that because of I don't believe in a six day or right. seven day creation." And, and I, I think that's really unfortunate. We make, made it an obstacle when it doesn't need to be. Yeah. Here, go ahead. No, I was just saying that's when Christianity gets labeled anti-intellectual. Right. And it's not. We, we have a, a rich history of, of intellectualism in Christianity. And, you know, as we get into this conversation, the Big Bang was was come up with by a believer, <laughs> yeah. a, a priest, you know. But we, we don't, we ignore most of that history and just stick with our, our side. And, well, and we forget that, that, you know. Uh, what position you take on evolution and creation isn't going to determine your salvation. When you get to heaven, God's not going to ask you, did you believe in evolution? Did you believe in six-day? You know, it's 
it's not determinative of our salvation. So. Yes. And there are good people who, I mean, Billy Graham was open to evolution. Yep. C.S. Lewis thought Adam and Eve were uh, figurative literary figures. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I think both of them are going to make it. I should hope so. <laughs> yeah. if, if they're not, then I'm in a world of trouble. <laughs> but, yeah. I, I, I do think there, one of the issues behind that for those who want to embrace a, a seven-day creation uh, position or young earth position is they're trying to protect the authority of Scripture. Absolutely. And I understand the desire to do that, but I just think they're bringing assumptions to the table that they don't have to bring. I, I, there are people who believe in evolution, who don't believe in a seventh-day creation, mm-hmm. who still embrace the authority of Scripture and see it as inerrant. Absolutely. They just are saying, when it comes to this text, we're handling that different because of what the text does. Yeah. Um, and that's that's maybe a, good, a great place for us to start. I know as we've talked about this conversation... Neither of us are, are scientific experts. Neither of us have background <laughs> in biology or physics. In fact, the last time I was in a biology class, my teacher wouldn't let me dissect animals because she was afraid we were going to stab each other. So, we, <laughs> you know, my, my scientific experience is very limited. I'll acknowledge that. But we would like to, to approach this conversation more from a, a hermeneutical perspective. Mm-hmm. How do we look at Scripture what is the purpose and intent of Genesis 1, uh, 2, and 3, and how does that have implications for how we live out in the world? So I think that's probably a great place for us to start right. is just with the genre of Genesis 1. So what would you maybe start with there when, when we start talking about this creation well, literature? Well, I think we have to talk about what genre is. Um, great point. Um, to me, genre is this notion that different writings are written in in different styles and you read them differently. So poetry is a genre and you read poetry different than a legal document, which is another genre, which is different than a historical document, which is different than a fable, which is different than a a fiction story. Uh, um, and, And the issue is you have to take the Bible on its own terms. What, what what happens, I think, is people come to the Bible and without thinking this through, they assume it's a particular kind of genre. Mm-hmm. So when we get to Genesis 1 and 2, we, th- we think we're reading history. Yes. A literal history of the creation of the world. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a possibility, but that may not be what it is. We have to investigate the text to see if we can tell what kind of genre we're dealing with. Right. Yeah, I think that's so important. And what's interesting is when you begin looking at at some other uh, nations at the time and their creation literature, there's there's some fascinating similarities mm-hmm. between this this genre of writing. And so it, it appears that the Hebrew writers are are borrowing from some of the common vernacular, or they're they're working. They're interacting. Yeah, they're interacting with borrowing, each other. But yeah, but they understood what they were doing in terms. Exactly, of and I think at the heart of it, the the what we have to start with at Genesis one is is what is the intent of the author? 
what are they trying to portray? What are they trying to communicate about the world and about God and about the way things are? And so many times we come to it just like you, you said, and we think that, well, it's a historical account of what happened. And when you begin exploring some of the, the genre and literature, you see that there's actually competing theologies of what they're trying to communicate about intent. We come to the Genesis 1 and we think it's describing the system of creation. And I would contend that it's it's really more about the source of creation. Right. And the Hebrew scholars are saying this, everything we see, the beauty, the, the, um, the tragedy, the amazingness of creation all comes from the source of Yahweh, and this is why we believe that and how he came about doing it. And I would agree with you, but I think sometimes people then step back and say, well, how do you know that that's the genre that 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 Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is? And I, I think it's a, a difficult task. In our own world, we jump between genres without even thinking about it. You know, uh, when so I sit down with a newspaper, I know what I'm reading. When I read a book of poetry, I know what I'm reading. When I read the lyrics of a song, I just automatically shift. If I'm reading a, a fairy tale to my kids, mm-hmm. I'm not reading that as history. But I don't think, oh, I'm reading a fairy tale. Right. I have to interpret this <laughs> different. Uh, yeah. um, I think in the day that Genesis was written, people understood the nature of the literature, mm-hmm. that it was creational literature. They were trying to answer foundational questions yeah. by laying out uh, a kind of literature that would answer who was God and mm-hmm. who was human beings and what went wrong with the universe and why are we here. And yeah. Genesis answering all those questions but doing it to, through this this genre of literature that was common in its day. Yep. So people didn't have to, what kind of genre is this? <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. But, but we come to the Bible, uh, um, and because a lot of it is history, we think Genesis must be literal history, and almost like it's a video camera. Yes. Well, the reality is none of Scripture is like a video camera. All of Scripture, uh, the authors pick and choose what to include and what not to include and and pick the genre they're going to present it in. Let me give you a good example. Jesus. Uh, um, Not everything he said was literal. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) He he told stories. The Good Samaritan was not a real person. Right. Well, we don't come to the Good Samaritan and say, you know, he really existed. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what happened on the road to Jericho. Right. No, because we know just because we're familiar with the literature, oh, he's telling us a parable. Yeah. Yep. And the moment that we know it's a parable, the rules change. Yeah. So the question is, what is it about Genesis 1 and 2 that says, hey, this may not be literal history, this may be something different. Absolutely. And I think it's important to know, because once you start talking about genre and literature and, and the different types of things people are, are trying to communicate through writing, we begin to say, well, how do you know if it's true? But we can look at a parable and recognize truth in the parable. Sure. And it may not be literal history, but it doesn't make it any less true. And and I it, think truth is determined by a, a, a piece of literature's intent. Exactly. Yep. If I look at the tortoise and the hare, is that true? Well, it's not history. Right. But the point that 
the fable is telling is true. Exactly. There's a, a redemptive aspect to what it's trying to say that communicates truth to us. And I think we have to have that lens on when we come to the, the different genres of scripture. Because people assume, well, if it's not literal, I can't trust it. It can't be true. But you can and that's even not the argument they're making. The, with Jesus and the parable of the Good Samaritan. Absolutely. Is that true? Is the parable of the Good Samaritan true? Well, the, the point of the story is true. Absolutely. Was it literal history? Was it true in this? No. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. And I, so I think it's really important to understand because people do come to it making that, that yeah. argument. And I, I think we come, uh, uh, you know, someone had says as a general rule of thumb, we should take a passage literally unless it makes no sense to do so. Mm. You know, I don't think that's a good rule of thumb. I, agree. I think the rule of thumb should be strive to take the passage as the original author intended it to be taken by the original audience. Yeah. Uh, um, we shouldn't default to being literal as opposed to being another kind of literature. Mm -hmm. Just and this is probably a whole nother podcast, but I find it so fascinating that oftentimes the people advocating for a literal interpretation also are selective about the places that are literal and that are implied, right? So there's, there's a whole conversation to be had about well, when you say literal, what do you actually mean? Because we can be just as guilty of picking and choosing on that side as people right. who are supposedly don't have the same respect for the scripture and are loose interpreters and all that. So you know, and we just have to, to admit that scripture at times is complicated. We read Proverbs different than we read the poetry and the Psalms. We read that different than we read the prophets. Prophetical literature is different. We read that different than apocalyptical, apocalyptic literature that we get in the book of Revelation. Uh, the Gospels we read more as history because that's how it was written. So we adapt to the genre of literature. Uh, there's just been this reluctance to say, well, what's the genre of Genesis 1 through 3 or actually Genesis 1 through 11? Right, yeah. You yeah, know, with, it needs to expand. You get to Abraham, and it, it starts to be historical. But before that, that may not be as uh, uh, historical in the sense of, of this is literally history, a video camera of what happened. Right. Uh, it may be a, a genre of literature that is asking for us to do something else with the text. Yeah. Which I think, you know, what you just said might make a lot of people uncomfortable. Genesis 1 through 11 is not <laughs> literal history. It's, it's, you know, figurative. It's, it's, uh, it's creation literature. It's trying to show us. So we have to talk about, so what is the purpose? And in the if we're kind of getting down to, to brass well, let me tags, Let me push you back Okay, one thing. Just because uh, I'm saying it's not literal history doesn't mean that there are not histor historical pieces Fair in point. It. True. So, so Adam and Eve are historical people. Uh, Cain is a historical person. But the way the literature or the, the story is told is bringing other pieces to bear on that. Fair. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah that's a great, great uh, addendum to that. So with that in mind, what would you say is kind of the purpose intent behind, particularly in context of this conversation, Genesis 1 and the creation narratives in, in 1 and 2, um, but obviously it kind of implies to all Genesis 1 through 11. I, I, you know, I, I liked what you, you said. I think he's laying out, he's interacting with his culture. There are other creation stories or creation literature out there uh, um, that talk about how the, I, the world was created. You were talking about 
uh, yeah. Babylonian Marduk. Yeah, talk. Babylon and, and Egypt. And, and really the, the premise of when you start looking at creation literature is they're, they're all trying to, these ancient cultures are trying to answer the question, if there's so much beauty in the world and also so much tra- tragedy, how did we end up here? And what kind of God, because everyone in, in that day was, was theistic, what kind of God is behind that sort of world full of beauty and tragedy? And what you begin to see is they, they borrow from one another, they interact with one another, they have things to say about the God behind creation. And so you come to a civilization like Egypt and they have several different creation narratives, but all of them begin similar way to Genesis 1 where there is a formless void of water just kind of in space. And then in the Egyptian story, several gods appear on the scene, but they're competitive, they are in conflict, they betray one another, there's violence. And and in the story, it's fascinating as these gods are in betrayal and it's the it's the conflict that is the source of creation and the source of violence and, and competition with one another. And in the story, humans are created uh, out of, of that violence. Or the same in Babylonian culture, there's a god who is the, the highest of the high gods and a, a young rival god comes forward. His name is Marduk and he attacks and there's this big battle that happens over the formless water and he splits this god in half and she becomes the sky and the earth and from the blood of, of her death humans spring up and they become the subjects for the gods and their sole purpose in life is to fill the temple with fruit and and drink and to do the menial tasks that the gods don't want. And so you have these narratives that are trying to say, okay, the world is is obviously this way. There's tragedy, there's death, there's and they all answer that question with Gods of violence were at the core. They're trying to explain the reality. Exactly. What, what is interesting, the Babylonians who re- read those creational stories, they didn't think they were literal. Right. Yep. That, that was not part of how they read that. But those stories were trying to answer foundational questions yeah. about the nature of God, the Absolutely. nature of reality, the nature of human beings. And that's exactly what Genesis 1 through 11 does. Absolutely. I mean, we learn about that God is transcendent, mm-hmm. uh, that he's the creator. We, we learn that human beings are created in his image mm-hmm. uh, uh, to co-rule right. with him. Yep. We, we learn the source of evil and the pattern of sin that we see reproduced again and again. We, we see the conflict that sin played out with Cain and Abel. Yeah. We, we see the nature of judgment and the nature of society. We see the creation of culture yep. and music and art. I mean, it's just foundational stuff yeah. that's being laid down in this creation literature. Yep. And, you know, we talk so much about the grand story here at Waterstone, the grand narrative. And what's fascinating is is it this is... Genesis 1 is is the Hebrew culture trying to tell the story of how things came to be. And what's so fascinating to me is when, so you get into the Egyptian uh, creation literature or Babylonian, when the people rebel against God, every story has this, the people rebel against the gods. The gods always come with retribution and mm-hmm. violence and slaughter and separation. And then you read the, the, the Hebrew creation literature and the people rebel against God 
he comes to them. He sacrifices on their behalf. He promises a future where they'll be together again. And the separation that that the humanity felt at that point from the heavenly realms, he says, one day I will reconcile that. And so it's a completely, it's as well, if Well, redemption they, wasn't part of the Babylonian. Any, yeah, any other creation narrative, it's not there. And then you come to, and so they're saying, there's a better story. There's a better way of explaining all of this and and. It's such a more compelling way, I think, to see the beauty in Genesis mm-hmm. 1 of a God who creates in goodness, in love, who shares his creation, who wants to invite humanity to rule with him instead of being subject to him. There's just a whole different story. It, that, it, and dignifies human beings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sees them as valuable. Yeah, they're not just things that are born from... Yeah. So, so, but how do we know Genesis 1, 2... Uh, as long as you want to take it, 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 is not literal. What are, you know, what are the, I think the literature itself tells us. For sure. What are the signs or indicators in the text that help us wrestle through that? Yeah. So for me, this was actually part of my personal journey. I mentioned growing up in a culture where everything was either literal seven-day creation or you're, you don't believe in in Jesus And as I started reading, it's fascinating how many times we can think we know what Scripture says and we think we know what the the words are. And I began reading Genesis 1, uh, and it's so fascinating because in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, it literally says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So in Genesis 1... One through two, before any of the days of creation have began, the earth is already formed. Mm-hmm. And so if you're advocating for a literal seven-day creation, it's hard to make the argument that creation starts on day one because there's already substance. The earth is already formed before day one even begins. And just seeing that, it began to kind of unravel. And I think there's a lot of details like that that clue us into. Oh. So, for instance, there, it's not chronological. It's yeah, not showing exactly. the order of how things came about. Um, and I think there's a lot of little clues like that in the text. Well, I think the first major one is you get two renditions of the creation story. So uh, Chapter true. one and chapter two. And they don't very line different. up right. very much. Their focus is, they, is, is very different. Yep. The, the text is very structured in its language. Uh, you just go through and start marking. You found out uh, the text says, and God said 10 times, mm-hmm. and let there be 10 times, and it was so seven times, and God saw it was good seven times. I mean, it's very carefully evening constructed. And evening and morning, uh, six times. It's crafted repetition. Uh, and the good word good in is used 15 times yeah. in, in the text. So that, that tells you, wait a second, somebody has carefully crafted this uh, these two chapters. Yep. And, and I think you miss it less if you actually read the chapters out loud because so then true. you hear the repetition and you go, oh, this is, this is like poetry. And right. it, it is poetic literature. There's a rhythmic pattern to the verses that are coupled. It, it has almost the feeling of a hymn or a song, yeah. You know? yep. So there's all so kinds true. of hints that the author is saying, "Wait a second, I'm doing something, something different here." Even in this depiction of God, I mean, He's walking, playing in the mud, breathing, <laughs> yeah. but God is spirit, and you're going, "Wait a second. And then you read, you you, you find these strange creatures, this talking serpent, yeah. <laughs> and you go, "Where did this come from?" Uh-huh. And even we miss this 
even the names. So Adam yeah. means human. Right. You know, if we, we just translated it, as we do all the other words, and God created human, and yep. Eve is uh, life, and Eden is delight. Yeah. So we miss all that. Yep. Uh, that this is uh, very carefully... It's, it's, it's non-historical in the sense that it's literature trying to, to reach a different intent other than giving us a video camera of what happened in the first moments of creation. It's Absolutely. not trying to do that. Yeah, and it, also I think it, when you dig a little deeper too, some of the, the days of creation are very representative of different gods and other societies and other cultures. And so it's fascinating. Once you get to Exodus and you begin seeing the plagues and God, Yahweh competing against Pharaoh for the heart of, of Israel and for um, their freedom, the number of plagues that correspond with days of creation and oh, the yeah. light and darkness and the God in Genesis 1 bringing order out of chaos and then in the plagues that descending back into chaos, it, it's very clear that they are making a political statement, I think, too, in this literature of what their God is and that one God created, and he's sovereign over all of these other nations that worship the God of the sun or the moon or the sky or the water. And so there's there's a lot more going on than just trying to communicate this is how it actually happened. Right. And we miss most of that. And, and to be honest, people will say, well, if you take it that way, you're compromising biblical authority. And actually, we're doing just the opposite. Agree. When you try to interpret Scripture in a way it wasn't intended, you're violating biblical authority. In other words, if you try to take Genesis 1-2 as literal history, mm-hmm. that this is a chronological recording of what happened when it wasn't written that way, you're imposing your meaning on it. Exactly. You have to let the literature be what it is. Mm-hmm. And once you do that, there, it's true. I mean, God is separate from his creation. Human beings are created in his image. Absolutely. Sin came because of a fall. There is an evil presence in this world that yep. tempts us to follow another way. I mean, it's true. Yep. Theological, theologically, it's brilliant. But it's not a chronological recording of what events took place at the beginning of creation. To impose that on it is to mistreat the scriptures. Absolutely, yeah. Which I think is what essentially this whole argument boils down to is is do we honor scripture and do we... Do we hold it in the highest regard? And so oftentimes the, the debate, if you will, gets confiscated into, well, if you don't believe in literal seven days, then you don't respect scripture. You don't respect intent or authority or God's word. And really, I think that the tragedy in that is you begin to miss the beauty of what it's actually trying to say. And there's so much uh, depth and richness in this literature and all of the different ways that they're trying to communicate who God is and why the world is the way it is and what humanity's place in it and what the story is and where it's headed to, you can begin to miss all that if you look at it to explain the science of our world. Um, when it wasn't intended, when it wasn't to, intended communicate to do that. that. And one of the challenges, I think, so obviously I think if you look at a literal seven-day creation, you, you have to do something to reconcile with the, the science that's prevalent out there. They, they seem to be in conflict with one another. 
also, I know the argument goes that if you believe in theistic evolution or, or God-ordained, God-driven evolution, then how do you begin to reconcile this view of, of Genesis 1 not being literal with some of the other places in Scripture that reference, for instance, Adam? Paul and Jesus talk about Adam in a historical sense. So how do we begin to, to well, solve that Well, just that because the literature is creation literature doesn't mean that there are not historical references in the literature itself. So I would hold that Adam and Eve, human and life, are real people, uh, um, that they actually existed, and we're learning something about them. And Jesus treats them as real, and Paul treats them as real. And what Jesus and Paul seem to be getting at is Adam becomes representative of the human race. Yes. I think one of the places we have tension right now is the question, was Adam the single source origin for all all humanity? Huge the, question. The science is telling us that's not the case. Right. Uh, um, and yet Paul seems to indicate he is the case. <laughs> so how do we handle that? And you know, we can say, well, one is right, one's wrong, or we could say, you know, our understanding of the science isn't complete, and maybe our understanding of Scripture isn't complete, and approach it with a little more mystery and humility. Yeah, which is, again, part of the richness and beauty of, of Scripture and of the Bible is that it is perfectly um, allowed and acceptable within the biblical authors to disagree, yeah. to be in conversation with one another, to offer different opinions and views of God. I mean, that's what most of the literature is. It's a conversation presenting different viewpoints. And and the Bible's fine with that. It's fine with contradiction. It's fine with gray. And we try so hard. We don't want the conflict. Right. We want to, to eliminate as much of that as we can so everything lines up perfectly. Yeah. And we end up missing out on this conversation. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, one of the values we've had at Waterstone is to agree to disagree. Mm -hmm. So on the fundamental things of our faith, the salvation by grace, uh, the Trinity, the existence of God, the reality of Jesus, the reality of the resurrection, the necessity of salvation by grace through faith, those are things we agree on. Those yeah. are primary issues. The authority of Scripture, a primary issue. But there are all these secondary mm -hmm. issues, whether it's uh, what you believe about creation or, or election or whether yeah. you can keep or lose your salvation or, yeah. uh, or, or when is Jesus coming back or what's the best way to interpret Revelation. <laughs> right. You know, those are not things that affect your salvation. Mm -hmm. So we hold those more loosely. Mm -hmm. It's not that we don't have convictions on them. We do. Absolutely. But it's not something we break fellowship over. Yeah. So you can be at Waterstone and believe in uh, young earth. Yep. You can be at Waterstone and believe in old earth. You can believe in evolution or not believe in evolution. Right. I mean, that's okay. Those are great things to wrestle with. Yep, um, absolutely. But we're not going to break fellowship over those issues. Yeah, I think that's well said. And, and the tragedy is that the church has been doing this for, for hundreds of years, thousands of years with different topics or issues that we begin to elevate to, to primary issues that we think we all have become to agree a litmus on. Test. They become the litmus test. And so we, ex to the exclusion of some camps um, and to the inclusion of others, and we go through history and, and every time that happens, the witness of the church is hurt, the, the unity of the church is always hurt, and we make issues out of things that did not need to be 
divisive. And the tragedy is that the church always suffers for it. And so if yeah. we could learn to be in conversation, which is one of the hearts, I think, behind this podcast, actually, is to, to take those topics that have typically driven people apart and say, no, there's more common ground here than you might think. Right. And I think it's a challenge for us as believers to be thoughtful. Absolutely. You know, uh, uh, not to view the world as black and white, but to understand there's nuance and complexity, uh, and there are some things that are absolutely certain. Mm-hmm. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus, salvation by grace, those, we're not talking about those things. Yep. But there's so much uh, gray beyond that yeah. and richness that we want to embrace and think hard about and think deeply about. Absolutely. And God is not threatened by our inquiry. (laughs) He he invites us into that conversation and the the seeking and the doubt that creeps in and the the struggle that that faith is. (laughs) We're just not very comfortable with much mystery. Exactly. Absolutely. And uh, that makes us nervous. And to be honest, uh, we really want to be right. <laughs> it is nice to be right. Yeah, yeah I, uh, it happens every once in a while for me, but I enjoy it when it does. Yeah, no, it's true. We we as as best we can, we would love to remove mystery and and, f- and fall on solid ground. Um, which I think the real tragedy that there is so much more common ground in the science community and the faith community than sometimes is given credit for. I I mentioned earlier that the father of the Big Bang was an actual father. He was a priest in the Catholic Church, and he (laughs) he came up with this theory. And in fact, uh, Einstein was so impressed with his work that he called him a genius. So that's the background of of our Christian faith. We have so many people uh, who are, you know, the language of God is another example of, of the human genome being mapped Christian has been behind that science. Right. And so we have this history of people who engage with that sphere, uh, and yet somehow we want to, to make them yeah. enemies when they have so much to contribute that can actually demonstrate well, And I think when truth. we do that, the church begins to, to come off as very anti-intellectual. Yeah. Uh, and not that we lift up intellect as the supreme thing at all, but we are called to be the people who, who are wise, who think deeply, uh, who, who ponder and uh, aren't afraid to engage in tough topics. And I think when we do that, it makes Christianity uh, more attractive to the world around us. I absolutely agree. And I, I really believe that at, at the core the search of science and the search of faith are, are really the same. It's mm-hmm. what, is true. what is true. That's the question that, that we're all longing to answer. And, and man, if, if science has something to contribute to how the world is the way it is and faith can plug in some of the gaps and uh, there's such beauty that can be had in, in a partnership there. And so right. it'd be wonderful to see if in maybe the next hundred years, uh, since we've been a hundred years from the Scopes Monkey trial, that we can move in that direction, right? Where, where people begin to cooperate. Well, and and I, I think it also has a profound impact on how you read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Because when you break out of just this uh, uh, rigid literalism, you begin to see it uh, uh, have more depth and be more complex and I know over the years I've become more and more impressed with its beauty, mm-hmm. complexity, the brilliance of its authors, the amazing literature. It's just enhanced its authority and truthfulness in my eyes and created this intrigue to read it more 
uh, to explore it more because it's so rich and so deep and so much there. So rather than compromising my view of Scripture, uh, you know, understanding its nuances has, has just increased that. It's it's just a doggone amazing book. It is, yeah. And it, it the beauty of that is it, it deepens faith and, and understanding and truth. And I think I always grew up having this idea that, that the the Bible was a very fragile thing. And that if I pushed against it too hard or if I asked too many questions, then it mm. couldn't hold up under the weight of my inquiry or my faith or my doubt. And that's just simply not true. I, I've found the harder I push, the more I doubt, the more I say, what really, does this actually happen this way? Or does this actually truth that the more it comes alive uh, and reveals the heart of God and, mm-hmm. and who Jesus is and um, and what faith really can be. And it's those moments when I, I've pressed um, and truly doubted and, and wanted to walk away that Scripture opens up in a completely new way um, and can handle any of, of the pushing yeah. or frustration that I might have. God's so much bigger than us. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I think um, that's maybe a good, good place to end it. Uh, for this first conversation is we're talking about origins and faith and, and how to read scripture that, that it is big enough to handle all of the difficult topics yeah. that might be coming up in this podcast and things that we're going to try to wrestle with. Yeah. Thanks for letting me weigh in on this one. I Absolutely. It's always a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate your knowledge and insight and I know people will be, uh, will be fed by it. So thanks, Nick. Thanks, Paul.